Welcome to the Cruciform Podcast, following Jesus on his way to the cross. In this podcast, we talk about how to live a life that is poured out in serving Jesus and shaped by his sacrifice. Here is our host, Perry Stepp. Greetings again from the mountain above Zagreb, Croatia. Today I want to talk to you about Christian leadership and a story about leading from Christ-like emptiness. This again referring back to Philippians 2.7, where Paul says we're supposed to think of ourselves the same way that Jesus did, even though he was equal to God. He did not cling to his equality with God, but he emptied himself. I want you to imagine with me a Christian organization where someone, a Christian leader, leading a group of people in a mission-directed, mission-focused organization is, is trying to get someone that works under their authority to produce information or documents for them that they need. And they've told this person about this, these documents, this information. They've asked for it over and over again. And the person that they're trying to get the information from just doesn't respond to them. And so this leader... He or she takes it personally. It's a personal insult. It's a personal affront. They've told them that they need the, they've told this person that they need the documents, the information, and there's just no urgency about producing them. So they take it as a personal insult and get angry and respond in anger and potentially make the situation worse. This is a bad response for a leader. But let's talk about why it's a bad leadership response. It's a bad response for several reasons. First of all, it's unlikely to give you a good result. When you respond like that to people by getting angry, by taking things personally, by responding in anger, does it make them want to cooperate with you or does it make them not want to work with you anymore? It's a bad response because it teaches the people who don't like you or people who don't like your leadership what buttons they need to push to make you angry. And it teaches them that they can push your buttons and what buttons to push. It teaches the, per- the people who do like you, who do like your leadership, that there are limits to how far you'll go with them. Uh, when you respond like this, you're teaching them that they can't depend on you. You might quit when it gets stressful and the going gets tough. It's a bad response because it's based on a one-sided perspective on the problem. Uh, there are things about the problem that, that you don't understand. And so when you get angry, you're, you're getting angry, you're responding on the basis of incomplete information, a one-sided perspective, uh, one-sided perspective. It's a bad response because it takes things personally that don't need to be taken personally. All of these reasons actually revolve around a single underlying reason that this is a bad response. And that single underlying reason is... It's a bad response because you're leading with your ego. This is a place where Christian leaders need to think about leading in an egoless way, emptying yourself as Jesus did, leading from Christ-like emptiness. What happens when we lead from our ego? Well, when we lead from our ego, we make everything about us and we don't see things accurately. We don't see what people are really doing or why. We become so busy with our own feelings, our own hurts, our own desire for what we want, that we get lost in our egos. Uh, There's a great book, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception, published by the Arbinger Institute, A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R Institute. It'll be in the show notes. 
And in that book, it talks about how when we're, when we're leading from the ego, it's like we're in a box and we can't see out of the box. All we can see is ourselves, the people around us, our coworkers, our colleagues, our customers, our clients are outside of the box, but we can't really see them. All we can see is ourselves because we're in the box. When we lead from our ego, it makes us unable to hear the other person. We can't understand their circumstances. We can't think of workarounds or, or better solutions because we're in the box and everything is personal. Uh, everything becomes a personal insult, a personal affront. In the hypothetical situation we started the, the podcast with, there, there are any number of reasons why the person might not have sent the documents to the person who was supervising them, the person who had requested the documents. It's unprofessional, it's rude, but it's not necessarily a personal insult. Maybe the person who they had asked for the documents was just very disorganized. Maybe they had had horrible things going on in their personal life. Maybe they had started, uh, maybe they had started to do the work but had lost it or hadn't finished it for some reason or another. But, but if you don't ask... If you just assume, then you never find out what the real story is. A good rule to follow is, if there is any doubt, don't assume that people are attacking you personally. It never leads to a good result. If the situation was reversed, you would want your supervisor to give you the benefit of the doubt. So you need to give the people that you supervise the benefit of the doubt in the same way. When we lead from our egos, we tend to overreact. We try to reestablish our dominance, our authority. And, and the tendency when you're trying to reestablish your dominance or your authority is to, over, is to escalate, is to go scorched earth, to overreact. Leading from the ego gives us a right to give up on people. Because if you're leading from the ego, then the most important thing is not their well-being. The most important thing is your status, your authority, the respect that you think you are due. Now, sometimes people are toxic, and sometimes we have to draw boundaries with toxic people, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the normal frustrations of working with people, particularly people in a volunteer organization, or particularly people who have multiple tasks and they're only working on your task part-time. Leading from the ego is dangerous because our motives are corrupted, our motives are compromised. Uh, take this story in the Gospels. It's in all four Gospels, actually. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple and running out the money changers in the temple. I think we learn the wrong lesson from that story. The lesson is not that we should follow Jesus' example by reacting in righteous anger when someone offends our religious sensibilities. If, if that was the point of the story, you could justify a whole lot of unchristlike behavior. But that's not the point of the story. John tells us what the point of the story is with the Old Testament quote that he puts at the very end of John chapter 2, at the end of that story. The point is that Jesus loves the temple, and the temple has a place, but it's been corrupted. And Jesus isn't out to destroy the temple, he's out to repair the temple, even though later on in the Gospel of John he is accused of being out to destroy the temple. But think about that story. And think about the differences between Jesus' anger and our anger. Our anger is almost never pure. Our anger is always influenced by the things that we've gone through. We're drawing on a well of hurts. 
and insecurities and frustrations that we've experienced in our lives. You know, in a way, we never really completely outgrow being little kids on the playground when the big kids were bullying us. That, that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of being picked on, that feeling of being hurt and disrespected, that stays with us our whole lives. And, and when, we're ang- when we're angry, that is usually there in the background somewhere, the ways that you've been hurt and slighted and, and disrespected in your life. But Jesus' anger was pure. Jesus' motivation wasn't selfish. My motivation when I'm angry is always partly selfish. Almost always partly selfish. Jesus wasn't motivated by putting them in their places so that he could reestablish his dominance. He wasn't nursing a wounded ego. He wasn't trying to make himself feel good about himself. And that's what I would be doing if I was doing something like that. Jesus' motivation wasn't self-righteous, but when I'm angry, my motivation often is. Uh, Brian Koppelman, in his podcast, The Moment, talks about how dangerous it is to use anger as fuel for your career, for your art, for your creativity, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, Koppelman always says, anger burns like fuel, but it doesn't burn clean. It always ends up damaging, polluting, destroying what you fuel with it. Or think of Yoda in the Star Wars movies. Anger, the path to the dark side is. When I get angry, it's usually not because God's insulted, it's because I'm insulted. When I get angry, it's possible, it's always possible that I have misunderstood the situation and rushed to judgment. Remember, Jesus had perfect wisdom and perfect understanding of people and their motivations. John tells us that. John tells us nobody had to tell him what was in a man because he knew what was in a man. He knew what their motivations were. I don't have that. I don't have that insight. I don't have that God-given wisdom miraculous wisdom that Jesus had. When I get angry, it's usually because my ego is on the line. When Jesus gets angry, his anger is pure because his ego is only based on his relationship with the Father. My ego has a selfish desire for admiration from people, for people to praise me. Jesus never wanted that. Or if he did, he never acted upon it. Because if he had acted upon it, he would have been sinning. We should try to have the same passion for God that Jesus shows here, but we can't act the way that he acted because we're not like him in our anger. We don't have the right. So to summarize, what happens when we lead from our ego? When we lead from our ego, we misread situations, we hurt people, we lose respect. We teach people how to push our buttons. We make our followers less likely to follow us. I want to talk for a minute here about psychology and about how stress distorts the way that we think. This is how Satan attacks us. As Christian leaders, this is one of the the levels that Satan is always attacking us on. Satan uses uses stress to move us out of the spirit and depending on the spirit and move us into depending on our egos and defending our egos. This comes from David Burns. He's a psychology professor, psychiatry professor at Stanford School of Medicine, and he wrote a book called The Feeling Good Handbook, great title, um, and compiled in that book a list of what he calls cognitive distortions that come from stress. 
And this summary is from a website called positivepsychology.com, but they're but they're footnoting David Burns. So here are the cognitive distortions. Here's the way, here are the ways that our thinking is distorted when we're stressed. Polarized thinking is the first one. We think everything is either perfect or awful, good or evil. In in religious terms, this is Manichaeanism, which is the idea that that everything in the universe is either black or white, good or evil, and there's nothing gray, and there's no no, no things that are neutral, and no things moving in between. Remember, Jesus said, "If anyone is not against you, they're for you." But polarized thinking which I see a lot in politics in America today. Polarized thinking is a cognitive distortion that's brought on by stress. Um, Think about how you think about politics. Ask yourself this question. Do I think that politics is primarily a struggle between good and evil or a struggle between groups of people with competing interests? If you think that politics is primarily a struggle between good and evil, and every issue falls into that, that framework. You're falling prey to this fallacy. You're falling prey to this cognitive distortion. Because politics is not, generally speaking, a struggle between good and evil. Even things that are dumb, even things that, that, that make no sense and are illogical, are not necessarily evil, and the people supporting them necessarily evil. It's just competing interests. That's the first fallacy, uh, polarized thinking. The second fallacy is overgeneralization. You take an example and you universalize it, or you, you universalize a single incident. I'm such a failure, I always do X. Or he's, he's such a failure, he's such a horrible worker, he always does this. Or in politics, Democrats always do this, or Republicans always do this, or Trump supporters always do this, or Trump opponents always do this, you know, whatever it is. You're taking a specific incident, you're taking a specific example, and universalizing it. That's the second cognitive distortion. The third one is called, uh, they call mental filter. This is where you focus on a single negative piece of information and exclude all the positive pieces of information. There's an old sermon illustration that's used when, when people, when preachers preach about marriage to illustrate the, the basic differences between husbands and wives. And I'm not this is not universally true, this is generally true. But a husband and wife are sitting on the couch, and they're being quiet, and they're not talking to each other. And the wife begins to think, my husband doesn't want to talk to me, he, he, he doesn't love me anymore. And the husband is sitting on the couch, thinking to himself, did I remember to close the garage door? I think I remembered to close the garage door, but I don't remember if I closed the garage door. Well, that's an example of mental filter where you pick one aspect or one factor, one single negative piece of information, and you exclude all the positive ones. The fourth, uh, the fourth mental distortion, disqualifying the positive. This is where you acknowledge that positive factors exist, but you reject them, and you focus on the negative, thinking, uh, the negative things or the things that are threatening. I had a friend in grad school who was a brilliant, brilliant New Testament scholar. And and would and would uh, would no doubt be if he were teaching and doing scholarship today uh, a, a scholar of, of world uh, an international reputation. He was that good. He was that smart. But he over the years he became more and more withdrawn 
because he was ten, he had tendencies towards depression and paranoia. And he would tell us, he would tell us in grad school, he would make a presentation in class and it would be absolutely brilliant presentation. And, and he would come out of the presentation and say, yeah, but the professor, the professor didn't smile at me or the professor didn't say enough nice things about his presentation. The professor hates me. I can tell he hates me. He's trying to get rid of me. And, and we just thought, you know, that he was being self-deprecating. We just thought it was, it was kind of a joke until the day that he, after, you know, well, he left grad school, never finished, and, and a couple of years later he locked himself in his basement and didn't come out for two years. Um, that's an example of, of this, of this, of this, uh, disqualifying the positive, where there are positive factors, but you reject them, you focus on the negative. Uh, another cognitive distortion is mind reading. This is the inaccurate belief that we know what the other person is thinking. Another is fortune telling, where you make conclusions and predictions based on intuition or feeling with little or no evidence, and you hold on to them in spite of evidence that's presented later. Another uh, cognitive distortion is catastrophizing, where our perspective is distorted so we exaggerate the meaning or importance or likelihood of an event. One that is like this is minimizing, where you take an important event and you make it so small you focus on other things and you ignore the important event. Another cognitive distortion is emotional reasoning. We accept that our emotional reaction to something is fact without measuring it against other information. If I, if I feel this, it must be true. I feel it in my heart. It must be true. Another cognitive distortion is, is personalization. You take everything personally. You assign blame to yourself or credit to yourself without any logical reason to believe that you're to blame. Similarly, another, another cognitive distortion is control fallacy. Either you have no control, uh, you believe you have no control over your life and you're a victim, or you believe that you're in complete control of your life. And you're responsible not just for what you do, but you're responsible for things that happen to you. You're responsible for how people respond to you. You're responsible for how the people around you feel. Another cognitive distortion is the fallacy of change, believing that you can make other people change and that if they change, you will be happy. Uh, an example of this is a, is a husband or a wife who says, I'm unhappy because my spouse is X. And if I could only change what my spouse does, then my life would be perfect. The final one that I'll mention today is perfectionism. Perfectionism and the imposter syndrome. This is believing that you always have to be right. Believing that any success you have had is false and precarious. You're always one false move away from losing everything. All of these are cognitive distortions. All of these are distorted ways of thinking that stress brings on in us. And, and as I go down the list, I can think of, of times this past week when I have fallen prey to this one and that one and the other. Um, these are things that Satan is always throwing up in our faces. Satan is always doing this to us. And when you're in leadership and you're leading from your ego you are especially prone, you are especially vulnerable to these kinds of distortions, these kinds of bad thinking. And Satan will find a way to chisel into your armor and, and bring these insecurities to bear. 
so that you end up reacting in a way that's not productive. What is the alternative to leading from the ego? The alternative to leading from the ego is leading from Christ-like emptiness. Leading from emptiness. What does that look like? It looks like this. You lead with concern for the point of view of the people that you are leading. You lead with humility. You accept that your understanding of the situation that they are working in, your understanding of their perspective is not complete. It's not perfect. They may have knowledge that you don't have. And that may cause you to reconsider the way that you lead, the way that you respond. You understand in advance that people will disappoint you, and you are prepared for that. Uh, You lead with a lack of concern over getting credit for yourself when things go well. You're willing to take responsibility, not blame, but responsibility when things go badly. You don't find a scapegoat when things go badly. You just say, I'll do better next time. Remember, when things go well, good leaders say we. When things go bad, good leaders say I. Not the opposite. This was something that always drove me crazy about certain politicians, different politicians we've had over the past 20 years. I appreciated very much how George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, anytime things went well, it was always we did this and we did that. And anytime things went badly, George W. Bush always said I I take responsibility. I should have done this differently. I should have done this better. Leading from from emptiness means you're willing to start with yes when people suggest things. This uh, is an idea that comes from Richard Rohr. I think it's in The Naked Now. I've forgotten which book this is from. It might be The Naked Now or it might be uh, Breathing Underwater. But Rohr talks about how if we're leading with our ego, our initial response when someone suggests something new or unexpected is to say no. Rohr suggests that we begin with yes. That's the mental habit of accepting new suggestions, new ideas, new concepts as you begin to weigh them. You accept them and you say yes to them initially so that you can truly weigh them and fully fully see them from someone else's perspective or from a neutral perspective rather than rather than just from your own my habit my impulse when someone suggests something that i don't expect something that doesn't fit my plans whatever my habit my impulse is always to start no with the word no and to say you have to convince me Rohr suggests that we provisionally accept the suggestion and say yes, and then consider it and weigh it. And when we turn it, then if we turn it down, we've at least given it full and fair consideration. Something interesting here when we talk about leading from emptiness, uh, the idea of leading from Christ-like emptiness is very close to what Jim Collins in Good to Great says about egoless leaders, level five leaders is what he calls them. He says these leaders care about making the organization great, not about making themselves look good. Put this in the context of Christian leadership. We want to see the mission carried out. We want to see the kingdom of God expand. And we we shouldn't care who gets credit. We shouldn't care if praise comes to us as long as praise is coming to Jesus. Again, you have John the Baptist at the end of John chapter 3 where he says of Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. That has to be our attitude as leaders in the church, as leaders in the kingdom. 
Jim Collins says that these leaders, the, this type of leader, has extreme personal humility and intense personal will, uh, intense professional will. The leaders who transformed companies were not larger than life saviors with big personalities. That's a quote from page twenty-two. They worked to make things better for their successors. They worked to give their successors the best chance at success. They're more invested in other people's success than in their own personal success. Or, they understand that they don't really succeed unless they help their colleagues and partners succeed. Um, Again, being focused on my own success is often not the same thing as being focused on the success of the organization. We can be focused on the success of the organization and not be focused on personal uh, personal, um, accomplishments. One of the things I have preached since I came to the Biblical Institute is that we don't succeed unless the churches that we serve succeed. It doesn't matter how many students we have, how much money we have, how many books we sell. If the churches we serve are not growing and not healthy, we failed. And if the churches we serve are growing and are healthy, then we've succeeded. As leaders, we try to look at situations with Holy Spirit eyes. But when there's stress, when a threat arises and our fight or flight reaction is provoked, our ego will snap blinders over our eyes. And suddenly all we can see is the threat. And generally all we can see is the threat to us. Personal. We might get fired. We might be embarrassed. We might lose money. And we can't hear the Holy Spirit's voice. We can't see with his eyes. Compare the two approaches. Leading from the ego makes everything about us. Leading from Christ-like emptiness makes everything about the kingdom and about the mission God has given us. Leading from the ego makes everything about your feelings, your hurts, your desire for acceptance. Leading from Christ-like emptiness makes everything about your colleagues and your partners and the kingdom and what the people around you need. Now that doesn't mean you always agree with them. That doesn't mean you always give them what they want. Sometimes people are wrong about what they need because they are leading or they are responding from their ego. One of the points that the Arbinger Institute makes in the book uh, Leadership and Self-Deception is that is that even if we are leading out of the box, sometimes the people that we are leading are in their own boxes. And we have to figure out how to work with that. You have to do what's good for the organization. Doing what's good for them, even if it's not what they want at the moment or if it's not in the way they want it. Doing what is good for them is good for the organization. And that's really the definition of love in the New Testament is doing what is good for someone. Leading from the ego makes everything personal. Leading from Christ-like emptiness avoids taking things personally. Leading from the ego focuses on reestablishing authority and dominance, and it tends to overreact. Leading from Christ-like emptiness puts the needs of others above your own for the good of the organization. Yes, there have to be boundaries on this, on this idea of putting the needs of others ahead of your own needs, and we we have to maintain our own health. Self-sacrifice is a conscious choice for the good of the organization. It's not, it's not meant to be a universal habit. It's not meant to be a, a, the way that we win acceptance when we feel insecure. Leading from the ego corrupts our motives. There's always a core of selfishness in everything we do when we lead this way. 
But the core of leading from Christ-like emptiness is love and the mind of Christ, wanting to lead like Jesus, reflect his character in our organizations. That's it. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll put uh, resources in the show notes. I've referred to several different books. I'll also put a selection uh, from a web page that has the cognitive distortions on it. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my colleagues, Moi Drugovi at the Biblical Institute of Zagreb. And have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Cruciform Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Cruciform Pod. Dr. Stepp is the president of the Biblical Institute of Zagreb, Croatia. And this podcast is a production of the Biblical Institute.